And this kind of forms kind of my worldview too, that one person paying attention can radically change somebody's life for the future. Because if Miss, she, it wasn't her job necessarily to, to like get, track you down, track me down, do research on my papers, and do research on this, you know, little known thing at the time, dyslexia. Uh, and she radically altered the trajectory of my life. And I'm eternally grateful yeah. uh, for her. From Fiori Communications, it's How I Got Here, a show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors, all the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. I'm Dave Fiore, and in this episode, I speak with Mark McNeese, the social entrepreneur in residence in the Jim Moran College of Entrepreneurship at Florida State University. Off campus, Mark is best known as the founder of Elementary Church and Red Eye Coffee, experiences that help shape his focus today. The native of Southern California ran his father's successful heavy equipment rental company before he felt the call to give up his comfortable but unfulfilling life to pursue the mission of church planting across the country in Tallahassee. He discovered a love for serving people and the desire to have a global impact without being afraid to ruffle a few feathers along the way. Mark is a husband, father, speaker, and sought-after consultant who still follows his dad's motto that in every situation, there is a way. We began our conversation talking about growing up in a hard-working family that taught him the value of persistence and eventually purpose. Growing up, I, I had a kind of an interesting childhood. My dad is an entrepreneur. Um, uh, he was kind of a forced entrepreneur. He he worked in heavy equipment uh, rental his his whole life, and the company that he was a salesperson and the company he was working for went out of business. And I think I was eight or seven years old when when that happened. Okay. And, and and when that happened, he came home and he called a family meeting. I remember, you know, we're all sitting there, you know, upstairs. And he's like, well, you know, I need to find a new career. And, and uh, what do you guys think, you know, I should do? I have a brother. Okay. Uh, so it's my mom, my dad, and, and my brother and I. My brother's uh, four and a half years older than me. Okay. So I'm just a kid. And I'm like, I think you should be a fireman. <laughs> of course. I, I, I thought I was actually thought it was an open discussion of what right. he was going to do for the rest of his life. The coolest job you could think of. Yeah. Right? Well, and the funny thing is, my daughter's a firefighter here in Tallahassee now. Oh, okay. Uh, so I, I got I got one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in the family. Right. Uh, and he's like, well, I think we're gonna, you know, he says, you know, I think uh, they can't pay me, so they're gonna like, uh, you know, I'm gonna take some equipment and I'm I'm gonna start my own business. Which I was like, oh, well, that's not as cool as being a fireman, but yeah. uh, <laughs> but okay. And so that was a really interesting time. My my when I was super young, my parents didn't have money, and like even when they got married, they couldn't afford to pay the the pastor. And my dad went fishing and gave him a few fish to. to oh wow. Uh, 
I remember going to what we would call the bash can store where like if a can was uh, dented, they'd take the labels off and write like tomato right. on yeah. it. Uh, I mean, probably legally you can't have stores like that anymore. But right. uh, So it was just kind of like going there. My mom uh, used to like get us – like she would go to the back of the supermarket and get like produce that they were throwing mm-hmm. out and like expired milk and things like that. Okay. It was just very, very tight. Right. Then my dad, you know – started doing really well and we had a really i would say you know middle class upbringing uh not anything extravagant i mean definitely tight budget and everything but uh but comfortable yeah uh and then he then he started his business and startups you know there's no money in startups and i remember like sitting there i'd like to say doing my homework i probably wasn't in my bedroom but i was doing something (laughs) Something. and, and I'd have like two lights on and he would walk in and I didn't get it at the time, but he's like, do you really need to have two lights on? (laughs) You know, that's, you know, and I'm like, what? (laughs) And I'm like, well, I guess not. And uh, so things got really, really lean for several years. Um, So lean that I think it encouraged my brother to join uh, the military, the army on his 18th birthday. Mm -hmm. And I was 13 and a half when he left and when he left, my my dad, like the business really started to take off. He landed a couple of really big jobs. And then suddenly we were like, uh, the family had money again. Now when you look back, I mean, obviously your whole adult life has been dedicated to entrepreneurship in mm-hmm. some way. Right. Um, so do you look back on that and say you you saw the the benefits of sticking with it and if there's any way to make it or what it took to make it and then the rewards at the end? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, one thing that I learned was there's no guarantees. My dad had a lot of entrepreneur friends, so I saw people lose everything and I saw people do extremely well. And so I saw the, I saw the whole gamut. Uh, one thing that, that I really learned was um, just the importance of tenacity. My dad had these ugly yellow cards with black font on it. It just said, there is a way. And he would give it to everybody he saw. It was all over the house. Just this idea that there is a way. I may not know what it is right Right. now, but there is a way to do this. And then my mom, who I... I think she was a even though she never worked in the business or or very little uh if she did uh she was a she was a two to force as well like she she, she would lovingly tell my dad like don't come home unless you sell something <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he had yeah. that that motivation and and one thing that I learned from my mom is the axiom and I use it to this day is persistence wears resistance mm-hmm. uh it doesn't like I'm not I'm not the most talented or smart or, you know, clever, you know, person, but I'm persistent right. and I'll keep going and people either like just give up and say, fine, or, <laughs> or, you right. know, I'll find a way. And that's, you know, that's with my education, you know, I've just never been a great student, but I have my doctorate just because I'm persistent, you know, right. I just, I just keep on going and going and going. If I, you know, have a goal, um, I just keep working at it and until I achieve it. Yeah. I was going to ask you why you think your dad made it, but I think you just answered it. That yeah. He just would never give up, it sounds like. He just like. never gave I, I, you know, I, I think it was that perfect combination that, you know, you often hear like the, the person behind 
the man, right? right. And my mom had a, was super supportive, but also kind of had that edge of, you're going to do this. You know, we've mortgaged everything that we have to do this. You know, right. There's no turning back. There's no turning back. This is either we're going to lose everything, which she fully signed on for. Uh, but, but my way my mom is, and, and I love this about her, we're not going to lose everything because we didn't do our part. Right. right. My mom has this thing. and She says, like, you can carry whatever you can carry. And I have my my palms, both palms up right now. And then she says, you do everything you can carry. And then you you turn it over. And and she's a person of faith. And she would say, let let God take care of the rest. Right. I've heard her say that so many times in so many you know different situations. You only can be responsible for what you're responsible for. There's lots of external factors. Yeah. But at the end of the day. You know, win, lose, or draw. You should be able to look your family and yourself in the mirror uh, and and say, "I did everything that was in my power to make this work." Yeah, yeah. And I read that you were a little entrepreneur yourself at age around ten. Yeah, you, you were uh, renting video games to your friends. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. That was one of my first successful actual money making businesses. Uh, so. When I was nine, 10 years old, entrepreneurship to me is identifying people's problems that you can solve at a monetary uh, plus, right. essentially. Like, yeah. will people pay you to solve their problems? And one of the big problems that I saw was these new video games like Atari and Intellivision were hitting and we were all crazy about it. But the, the games back then were super simple and you could basically master them right. in 45 minutes or something. Yeah. But they were super expensive. I, I, I don't know, I, it, especially for the time, right? I think it was like $30, you know, back in the 70s. It's you know, huge. That's yeah. a huge amount of money. So parents – Especially parents that did get the video game thing, right? They didn't have video games. And and, uh, and so they were like, well, we bought you a game and we bought you the console. And so everybody kind of had these games and they were bored with them. And I saw my friends starting like swapping games and, and, and everything. But there was always like a lot of friction in like, well, my game, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So I went in and, and decided uh, I'll start buying up these games. Yeah. And then... I'll just rent them for 25 cents uh, per day. That really, really took off. I took off to the point where I stopped carrying books to school and I had just video games packed in my backpack. And so how did that impact your academic career? You know, my academic career has never been all that uh, <laughs> uh, great. And at that age, really. <laughs> yeah. And that's when I learned that uh, asking for forgiveness is better than asking for permission. Uh <laughs> Uh, the the school and, and that regulations can shut you down overnight. <laughs> so right. the school didn't like that. It was a different time, right? Like we at the Jim Moran College, you know, we expect students to do yeah. this. Yeah. You know, this is what we teach. And but they didn't like it, and and they shut me down. And uh, then I pivoted, and my parents' home was very close to our school, and people would like walk by our house to go to the bus stop and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I would run home and put set up game consoles in the garage, open up the garage and uh, charge kids to come to come play there. Come play there. Wow. Yeah. So that that was my first, I guess, successful ish <laughs> business. Yeah. Um, and then after that you went to La Kenyatta High School. Is La that am I saying it right? Yeah, yeah La Kenyatta. It looks like Canada. Yeah, LA I, Canada. In fact, uh, 
uh, there's La Cunada Street, and there used to be a joke that, uh, uh, the, on the radio. There was this commercial where these, you know, kind of like Dumb and Dumber guys right. are on the L.A. Canada freeway, but they're never getting to Canada, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's La Cunada. Okay. So probably there's a there's a big jump uh, from where I went. So I actually flunked out of school in the ninth grade. Okay. Uh, and on my way out, uh, the guidance counselor tracked me down. When that's you say it. flunked out, I mean they told you not to come back? Yeah, I had a 0.00 average. Okay, that's not very high. No, it's not very high. It's hard to do, too. Yeah, I was going to say that takes some effort. Uh, <laughs> it was a point where I had totally given up, and I just I I just wasn't succeeding in school, and it was just – it was really, really challenging. I was on my way out after I got dismissed, and this guidance counselor, her name – is was she's passed away now, mm-hmm. uh, Mrs. Bryson, mm-hmm. and she tracked me down and she said, "Hey, Mark, um, can you come to my office? I just want to um, ask you some questions." And I'm like, I, d- "I didn't really know her or anything, but she obviously heard my story, right. and she pulled out a lot of like my assignments. Like she went to the teachers and got my assignments, and she's like, I've been looking at your assignments, and she's like, I don't think you're dumb, um, and she's like, Do you mind if I give you a test?" And I'm like, oh, great, another test to flunk, right? right. She's like, this is not a pass-fail kind of thing. This is just – so she did this thing, and uh, she didn't diagnose me, but she's like, I think you have something called dyslexia. And I didn't know what that was. Nobody really right. in the early 80s knew what dyslexia was. It's not like today that we you know, we, we know these things. Uh, and so she took the time to call my parents in and just say, you know, we don't – you know." Uh, my dad dropped out of high school. Uh, my mom didn't graduate high school. My brother barely graduated high school. Uh, so this is kind of like part of my family, you know, okay. heritage. You know, I was planning on just going to work and, and hammering it out, get a trade and, and, and do something. So she explained to my parents like this dyslexia thing. Then I went and got some more testing and things like that. And I was in the ninth grade and they found out that I had a reading level of like lower, mid, fourth grade. Like numbers and especially numbers and like letters, like I just switched them around all all the time. Wow. And yeah. it just it, – it came to a point like I could – they found out that – I'd compensated all those years because I listened really well, and I was able to make it by. But getting up into you know high school where you're writing a lot and everything, yeah. you just couldn't get away with it anymore. And I got so discouraged that I just kind of like yeah. threw up my hands. But it I, takes a lot of brain power, I imagine, to convert everything in your head and try to you know make it. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is I have a couple of blog posts that. Terrible students make great entrepreneurs. You know, Richard Branson and all these guys have severe dyslexia. And I think it forces you to look at things differently and solve problems in a different way, which is exactly what entrepreneurship is. Right. So um, to my parents' credit, and fortunately, this is a time where there was money. My dad's business was doing really well. I went to really like a small little school called Hillside. Uh, It was in La Cunata to teach me basically how to – tools to overcome – uh, dyslexia. So I started full-time in at Hillside. Uh, I think in my sophomore year, I got to take one class at La Cunata High. And then in junior year, I think I was like just majority there. Mm-hmm. And then my senior year, 
I was full-time except taking like one course at Hillside. So I did actually graduate from La Cunata High. It was a really great experience for me and you know, it was just super important. And, and this kind of forms kind of my worldview too that one person paying attention can radically change somebody's life for the future. Because if Miss, she, it wasn't her job necessarily to, to like get, track you down, track me down, do research on my papers and do research on this, you know, little known thing at the time, dyslexia. Uh, and she radically altered the trajectory of my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm eternally grateful yeah. uh, for her. Right. So after high school, it looks like you went to school for fashion design and merchandising. Yeah. Uh, nobody ever uh, would guess that yeah. about me. Um, I wanted to be in the fashion industry. I wanted to. You were into clothes and stuff? Uh, yeah. Um, I really liked the the business and I liked fashion. And uh, I was into really two things. I was really into politics in high school and I was really into fashion. So yeah, I, I wanted to be a buyer. I wanted to, you know, rise in the ranks of, of fashion. So I went to FITM, Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising, uh, and got my AA in fashion marketing. Through that, I realized I didn't want to be part of the fashion industry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. And graduated from that and and I didn't really ever think I would go on in school but I really fell in love with marketing at that point I think being a marketing major too was very helpful for me because they every time they said marketing it would get my attention because my name's Mark and I'm like <laughs> so you thought you I'm were like, missing something yeah I thought right? I was being called on multiple Mark. times throughout <laughs> the day so I think that's I mean seriously I kept my attention you know, right you hear your name and and so for all you Budding college students out there, pick a major with your name in it. <laughs> That's right. It'll help you stay focused. Yeah, especially right. if you know you have ADHD or something. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it's definitely helpful. Uh, so I went to a small school in Burbank called Woodbury right. uh, University. And it was a university because it had two colleges. They had okay. the College of Business and they had the uh, College of Architecture. So I got my bachelor's of science in marketing there, uh, and. Just absolutely fell in love with marketing and and just everything about it because marketing, uh, I think, really lines up with kind of like what I like to do is is tell stories and connect people in that in that story and have them belong to that story. Now, I know I'm not telling you anything, but yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's your great. Base, but yeah. yeah, so I, I always uh, really liked marketing, and I, I would say that that's probably like at the core who like. In business, that's probably like where my main skill set is, is being able to articulate and tell stories of my company or other companies and help connect people, the right, you know, the target market with with those people. All right. So during this time, were you also working at your father's company? Right. So when I graduated, my dad always really had the dream of having my brother and me working at the at the company um he even named the company russ mar which my brother's name's russ my name's mark so russ mar okay uh i always said we'd be a lot more successful if it was mar russ but (laughs) but nobody listens to me i'm the marketing guy but okay my brother was still in the military so i went to work with my dad and i took over the marketing of of the company and i did outside sales uh as well i was able to really bring a lot of the the things that I learned in marketing and just kind of like how I naturally think about storytelling and really change the way that we marketed the company and how we branded it and to tell the story. 
and that was really, really successful. All right, so what was your life like there, living there, you know, working in your dad's business, just kind of, how would you describe what, what that period of your life was like? Yeah, it was an interesting period. I was living in Redondo Beach at that time, and I was really close to the company. Um, the company really took off. I was pretty good at, at what I was doing, and my dad had built just an amazing foundation for me to, you know, uh, do the next thing with, I think, um, some of the marketing tools that I brought were really big, especially in that industry. It was all kind of like at that day, uh, kind of mom and pop and just, it, uh, it wasn't very sophisticated there, right. the marketing and, you know, then people are going to laugh at this, but while I was there, like the fax machine came out. That was a big deal. It was a big deal. Yeah. And I, I remember buying a fax number list for contractors and I started this, you know, fax campaign and the business just blew up. Like I was able to contact thousands of people in a day. Right. Uh, instead of me going door to door to door to door, right, like blast faxes. Yeah, blast right. faxes. You know, I'm yeah. I'm, I'm original spammer. So thank <laughs> me every time you get spam. Yeah. Uh, and and back in the day it was so new fax machines. Like you know, I don't know if you remember. You're you're probably too young, but you know, you would hear the fax machine oh, go yeah. off, no, and you'd run over sound. and like, yeah. what's what's coming in? You know, <laughs> how do they do that? It's yeah, just so cool. Yeah, yeah. so uh, that that was a huge boom for us, and so things things were going really well. The money the money was really good, and uh, I was living at the beach, and at at that point, I went into my first like real depression. I always kind of had this worldview of uh, if if I married the right person, I was living in the right place, I was driving the car that I want, I was making this amount of money, I would be happy. And very young, I achieved like all of these goals. And I kind of like, was like, well, well, now what? Hmm. You know, not that I was like wealthy or anything, but I was really comfortable, especially yeah. for my age. Um, I'd done well. And so I hit this huge uh, depression. I'd been married six months. So like everything on the outside looked like it was, you know, rock and roll and, you know, sex and caviar and all this kind of stuff. But uh, I came, I came to a point where I was like, wow, like I, like this doesn't, none of this matters. You know, I, I, I like have no joy in life. Like I don't have any excitement or, or anything like that. Um, my dad was out of the business at that time. He had retired. So what was the result of the depression you were experiencing? Well, the, my dad and I didn't have the greatest relationship at that time. Um, I, I, I could just say I was cocky and not very likable, kind of a know-it-all. I kind of, I think I'd grown a really thick skin just because of the dyslexia and everything and just kind of like a, I'll show you Mm. kind of attitude and I don't need anybody. I can do it on my own and everything. A lot, what a lot of 20 something males are like, uh, my <laughs> yeah. son is like <laughs> right now he's figuring it out. Um, yeah. In fact, when I have issues with my son, I'll call up my dad and he'll start laughing and I'm like, that's not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> but he's enjoying it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. he, he, I mean, he cares and I mean, obviously he gives me good advice, but yeah, he's sure. definitely enjoying that I'm getting a little taste of, of who I was. So at that time, I would say I was a functioning atheist. I didn't really think about spirituality. I never really thought about my soul or or anything. And my both of my parents have been people of faith their whole life. Uh, 
And I hadn't seen my dad maybe for like six months. And he's a musician. He was traveling around playing shows and everything. And he's played, you know, with uh, John Denver, Jerry Garcia, Vince Gill, like backed him up on his one of his albums. He's in the Bluegrass Hall of Fame. He's Wow. What uh, does he play? He plays the dobro or resophonic guitar, so yeah, he's okay. he's very well known, and they just did, I think like it was, a, I forget how many hundreds or thousands of dobro players, like, had a thing in North Carolina where he was the person of honor, and they were playing his songs. Wow. And, and what's his name? Uh, his stage name is Leroy Mack. Okay. Uh, LeroyMack.com. Cool. So he was heading out to, like... Czechoslovakia or something they like there was like a big boom of interest in bluegrass music so he was so he decided to stop by the office and it was probably the lowest point of my life when hmm. he came by he's like hey how's it going and everything and it, and I don't know why but it was like the first time I like was going to be honest about how I was feeling and uh, I asked him into my office, which used to be his office, uh, uh, but uh, right. it's my office now. And and we sat down, and I just kind of like poured out my heart, you know. I just said, "Hey, Dad, I'm, you know, I just I'm miserable. Like I just I, I don't I don't know what to do. Like I just I don't want to do anything anymore. I just kind of want to drop out." I always remember he got this smile, and I know this is a family show, so I'll uh, edit this. Uh, I was like, I was like this. I just told my dad, like, I want to give up. And uh, he, he's like smiling. And I was like, so angry. And then he looked at me, he's like, your mother and I have been praying for this day to come. Wow. And so he, he said, my mother, you know, your mother and I have uh, been praying for this day. And I'm like, why would you pray for me to come to my end? And he's like, because you've tried to live, we've watched you live your life on your own and we've wanted to see you uh, come back and, and, and like rely on family and rely on God. And, and, I, and I said, dad, I don't need this religion stuff. Like I've rejected that. And he's like, I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about having a relationship with, you know, one true living God. And I'm like, wow, you know, so we talked about that. And at that point um, I became a follower of Christ and like people are like, were you so joyful and everything? I'm like, no, I was still miserable and everything. But I did have one thing that I hadn't had in years and years and years. And that was a little bit of hope that there was more to life than making money and being right. successful in business. Yeah. So that became uh, a big part of my life. I got an amazing, my dad was really good friends with one of the most uh, successful home builders in Los Angeles and Colorado Springs. Uh, so I had an enormous amount of respect for him as a as a businessman, and I realized that he also was entrusted with depression. Um, mm -hmm. And when I talk about depression, I think of it as uh, you're entrusted with affliction to help other people. Um, you're not you don't suffer from it if you have the right attitude and look at it correctly. Right. Uh, you're entrusted with it. And I've been entrusted with dyslexia. I've been able to right. speak to so many students who have learning disabilities and so many teachers to encourage them how right. important they are. And then, you know, entrusted with, with depression and been able to have, you know, lots of conversations with people about that. It's like, it's like, in fact, it led me to write a book much, a lot of years later, I, I swam from Alcatraz Island to uh, San Francisco I that, and yeah. I wrote a book called Immersion and just the importance of taking care of your, you know, your, your mind, soul, body, and, and your spirit and, and your community based on the great, uh, 
uh, commandment, great commission. And so that, that became a big part of my life is like discovering what the soul was and what it means to live for something that's not necessarily for you. Mm-hmm. And so Which that was a pretty foreign concept to you at that point in your life. Yeah. Like right? my mom likes to recount a story that we, we used to go to the ballet. We had uh, season tickets to the Joffrey Ballet and the American mm-hmm. Ballet. And that was just a thing. And my mom and I always loved musicals and things like that. So that was just something that we we did. And, and I remember asking, she brings this up all the time, or used to bring it up all the time. And she's like, she asked me one day, like, what, what do I want out of life? At that point, I said, I want to make so much money that I can tell anybody to go to HE double hockey sticks. Uh, that was just my, you know, just right. what I, what I thought. And, you know, I'm not proud of that, but that's just truth. I mean, that's right. just where I was. Not I was, dependent on anybody but yourself. Yeah. I just, I, you know, and it's so funny, like, I mean, I, I think about that young man and I, it's really difficult for, like, even when I talk about it, it's hard for me to dif- to connect how I feel now to that. Like, it's right. so foreign to me, but I know I experienced it. I know it's true. Uh, but I mean, we're talking a lot of decades in between. Yeah. Uh, and I've taken a very different path than just trying to make money. In 2002, I think I had landed a big business deal and I just felt nothing. Like, I just, I, uh, it like wasn't important to me. It wasn't going to change my life at all. And I was like doing a lot of volunteering in the church at the time and with kids. And those interactions were so important to me and fruitful. I was like, I think that this is what I should be doing is just mm-hmm. working and serving people. Uh, so I called up my mom and dad because um, I was their retirement program. And I said, hey, right. you know, it, it was good at the time. The rental business was becoming big business. And there was United Rentals and Sunbelt Ro- Sun Rentals and all coming on. And they were gobbling up little right. uh, businesses like like ours. And I said, what do, you, what, what do you think if we could sell the business? I think it's a good time to sell the business. I don't think I want to do this for the rest of my life. I think I want to be a church planner, actually. They were, like, so excited and so supportive. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my dad came back into the business to help, you know, market it and, and sell it. And we eventually sold it. And my parents did, you know, very well. I did pretty good. It, it, was, good, it was good for everybody. And then at that point... I was like, okay, you know, uh, where, God, where do you want us to go? Hey, everybody. Just a quick reminder that this episode is brought to you by Fiori Communications. Just like people, every business has a story to tell. And we've been helping our clients tell their story since 2001. Because who you are as a company is just as important as what you do. To learn more about how telling your story can make a difference in your business, visit FioriCommunications.com. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. And at this point, it's you and your wife. Yeah, okay. and I have two kids. I have Madison, who's the firefighter. She's she's probably six, and my son is two okay. at this time. So I traveled all around looking at different like places, and then some folks wanted to uh, plant a church here in Tallahassee. They called me out of the blue. I mean, you knew them? No, I didn't know them. I, we were both part of something called the Willow Creek Association. Yeah. Uh, so I was part of that, and I had some – like, I'm a church planner, you know, if anybody – Bill Hybels. Yeah, Bill yeah. Hybels. Yeah. They said, hey, you know, we'd like you to come out. And I said, you know I'm a Gen Xer from L.A., right? And they're like, we know. We know who you are and everything. I'm like, okay. So I told – my wife and I 
promised God we'd go through every open door. And so I wasn't going to come. And I told my wife, and she hates flying. Uh, I said, hey, these people in Tallahassee wanted me to come out. I don't think I'm going to go. And she's like, we promised God we'd go through every open door. I'm like, that's right. We promised. You're coming with me. (laughs) (laughs) So we came here, and it was nothing. I never thought I would be called to a city of less than at least 500,000 people. Like, I just – I just. I was from L.A. Like, L.A. mindset is ex- very, very different. <laughs> and yeah. so we came out here, and I was just – it was right when the whole hanging Chad thing had just been resolved mm-hmm. and, and everything. And then I saw the universities, and, and I was like, wow, Tallahassee changed the trajectory of, of the history of the earth. Like, what happened here – you know, right. radically what was decided here in Tallahassee. The Supreme argu- Court. Yeah, yeah here in arguably yeah. like we would be in a very different place today, worse, better, I don't know. But it, we would have had – we would have a very different history. If, if Al it, Gore would have been yeah, president right. instead of George Bush. Exactly. I came back and forth, you know, several times talking to people and things like that. And I just really felt, wow, you know what? I, I always wanted to have a global impact. And I'm like – I think this is a place where you could have a global impact with, you know, the two major universities, with the big community college, government, you know, people come here and then they go out all over the world. And I'm like, if you want to have a global impact, this may, this, I think this is the place to do it, which you would never maybe on a map pick Tallahassee. But if you look at the fundamentals, there's a lot of people who are very influential who, who live here. Yeah. They call them, they're like, we, we want you to be our we want you to be our church planner. And I said, tell you what, I'm going to fly. I was still working full time at Russmar and everything. And uh, I said, I'm going to fly out like on a red eye or something on Friday. On Saturday, we're going to have a meeting and I'm going to do all the talking and you're going to listen. And then on Sunday, we'll have like lunch or something before I get back on a plane and we're going to have a meeting and you're going to do all the talking. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see if God's bringing us together. So I flew out, and in that meeting, I just – I laid out, like, worst-case, like worst case, like, church people fears, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like the church that I was uh, running called B2X in, in, in L.A., it was a church within a church, a big church, and there was, like, a, a big kind of, like, Gen X, you know, millennial okay. ministry. And – we really had people coming who really wouldn't weren't normal church people like and we had like you know the church hired security and all this kind of stuff because they were like afraid stuff would happen to the security guard is like you know hey there's guys smoking pot in the in the parking lot what do you want me to do and i said go back and tell them church starts in 5 minutes <laughs> <laughs> finish up right yeah and, uh, so it was that kind of kind of thing yeah. so um kind of Trying to reach the unchurched, not right. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't trying to reshuffle the sheep pen or anything like that. I wasn't interested in that at all. I had a really clear vision of of what I was being called to do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm like, there's going to be people with tattoos and and nose piercings, and they're going to be saying bad words, yeah, and and and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And so I did. I'm like, I went back to my hotel room that night and. I'm like, I scared these people off. You know, they're not going to want to do this. So the next day- Because you kind of cast that vision for I that's what you vision, wanted here? Yeah, exactly. I was just like, I'm not interested in reshuffling the sheep pen. I'm not interested in trying to get, you know, John and Susie from Killarn United Methodist to come to our church. Like, right. I, I, it's just not, that. I'm not giving my life to that. My life 
is wanting to people who've lost hope or mm. or need hope uh, and need love and feel like I don't believe this is true, but a lot of people feel like they are wouldn't be welcome in another church. Right. I, I, you know, a traditional church. I, I, uh, I don't believe that's true. I believe that people could walk into any church. But, you know, you hear like, oh, if I walked into church, you yeah. know, lightning would strike me. And I go, no, you know, people would hug you and love you. But I wanted to, like, create something that people like that didn't have, like they they felt like they belonged. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, I, I always was very authentic and just about my brokenness um, on stage and everything. Just say, like, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. You know, we're all struggling through this. We may be struggling with different things. So I just wanted that kind of a culture. Right. So... On Sunday, we got together and we just sat there and I was with, you know, probably like maybe eight other people, average age, probably 60 something, uh, not really my demographic. Right. Uh, so I'm sitting there and then the kind of the leader of the group, I finally, I'm like, this is the meeting that you're doing all the talking. And, and he looked at me and he said, what are we waiting for? Wow. I'm like, oh. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so so I guess they bought into your vision. Yeah, for totally. What you 100%. To do. All of those people were amazingly faithful through some really hard times. You'll probably appreciate this like uh when we were, you know, in the uh what we called the cocoon stage where we weren't public and we we're just kind of like who our identity yeah. was and we came up with all of these like different names for the church and and things like that. We're like, you know, let's pick a name. I'm like, we're not going to pick a name people at the downtown get down are going to pick the name. And uh, okay. so crowdsourcing uh, it. I made up a marketing survey. One of the uh, founding members of the church uh, is an op- owner operator of a Chick-fil-A. So he gave us a stack of Chick-fil-A uh, coupons. Nice. Uh, people will do anything for Chick-fil-A. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, in California at the time, there's, I'd never even heard of Chick-fil-A. Right. So like, I, I was like, I didn't realize that at the time. So they're like, you're going to let drunk people t- pick the name of our church? And I'm like, 100%. <laughs> so we, I sent, you know, these nice people, you know, out with clipboards and Chick-fil-A coupons. And we ended up calling the church Element 3 Church, uh, E3 for short. Right. And uh, the th- three elements was where faith, authenticity, and emerging culture meet. So we started that and we ended up renting the tree restaurant from DeVoe Moore. The first Sunday that we were meant to start, I, I, I came there and uh, somebody had thrown a rock through our window, uh, not wanting us to, to be there. And that's there's a lot of ugliness because um, a lot of church people, the church culture was very different uh, in 2003 versus it is now. We were the first kind of like church that was kind of like you know, kind of the Mars Hill, right. you know, uh, you know, Warehouse 242, you know, all these kind of like, you know, kind right. of like different. Not typical. Not typical. Um, you know, I had pastors, which we reconciled later, but we're like in the pulpit calling us a cult and everything. I'm like, look at our statement of beliefs. Like, what's cultish about it? They're exactly the same as yours. Right. <laughs> so uh, so that, that was really hard for me to come from L.A., which is probably not at that, you know, not so much judgmental and, you know, have pastors actively like denouncing what we were trying to do without ever speaking to me and things like that. I was very lonely the first year I was mm. here because I didn't have any church community. I didn't have other pastors. I could, they were just angry. To their credit, I think every single one of us, like the, 
just about every single one of them after, you know, years and years and years of me being there invited me out to lunch and asked for my forgiveness. Mm. Uh, they were just like, we were just threatened. We didn't take the time to actually get to know you or what you were doing and, and things like that. That's interesting to me. I mean, they were threatened by potentially, I mean, you're not going after the same people in mm. theory, right? So no. uh, they were, they thought you were hurting the gospel message in some way. I, I think so. It, that would probably be the purest spin on it that you could give. And I, 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 I don't, I, I really don't know. I just, I think it was just so different for Tallahassee at that period, you know, going to E3, especially in the early days, was like going to a rock show. Like we had an amazing band and lights and 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 uh, fog machines. And, right. and instead of pews, we had cocktail tables that people were sitting at and things like that. So it was a very, very different kind of vibe than what people had experienced before. You know, it, I got a lot of criticism for this, but, you know, I, I, I didn't. I didn't drink even at, at the time, but I would go to bars and and hang out. I go. I had a motorcycle at the time. I would go to like Hooters on you know Harley night and stuff like that. There's enormous amount of criticism from what I would call the traditional church because you know I I was there and but you know I always thought you know what when I go to heaven I'm gonna smell like smoke. I don't smoke, but right. but, yeah. but uh, well, um, Jesus kind of set a precedent yeah. for that, and that's right? the way I looked at it. Was like Jesus came for the least of these. He hang, hung out with prostitutes and fishermen and normal people. He wasn't hanging. Well, he did go to the temple, but he wasn't like. I mean, when Jesus had harsh words, it was for the religious people, right? Mm -hmm. uh, who thought they were clean on the inside, but they're rotting on the inside. So, to me, I had. I do and had, had, have a very supportive wife. I just had a very firm, you know, what I would call a call that I wasn't being called at that time to country clubs. I was being called to club clubs. Right. And, and So were people coming to faith in the church? Oh, yeah. We uh, just had a, you know, a flood of, of people who just felt welcome and were able to hear the gospel in their own language, hmm. not English, but uh, <laughs> right. uh, in a way that that made sense to them and wasn't condemning, but a message of hope. You know, there's no, we never at E3 said, you know, you have to do this, you have to do that, you know, to be accepted, right? That all you have to do is admit that, how we would say it is, uh, this is a broken, messy person who needs help. Right. Um, and that was the only deal. You know, it worked for, you know, I was the pastor there for, I think, 17 years. All right, so part of your vision for E3 is social impact, right, beyond mm -hmm. just the doors of the church. Yeah. And that led to uh, Red Eye Coffee at some point. So. Tell, tell us how that happened. So my father and mother always modeled generosity um, and giving. Uh, it used to make me angry when I was a kid, but they gave a large part of their resources to local and global empowerment charities or, glo or gospel initiatives. And right. so that was modeled for me. And when I became a follower of Christ, that was extremely important to me as well as investing in really interesting things and people who mm -hmm. who wanted to be what I would call the tangible hand of Christ. So when I moved to Tallahassee, I took like a 95% pay cut and realized very quickly, like all startups, there's no money in church planning. And for the first time 
really in my adult life, there was no money to do this. And uh, through Providence, I ran across a guy who was a coffee roaster here in Tallahassee, but he didn't know how to sell coffee. Well, I don't know how to roast coffee, but I know how to sell things. Yeah. So he's like, you want to buy some? And I had $20 in my pocket. And I said, I'd like to buy $20 worth of coffee. So I bought that $20 worth of coffee, and I put that coffee into smaller bags. I just wrote on the bag, 100% of proceeds go to local and global empowerment charities. And I think I had like six, seven bags. And I went to church, and I said, hey, I bought this coffee. We're not... We don't have any money to invest in gospel initiatives, um, but if you buy this coffee, 100% of it will you know, go to local and global empowerment charities. You know, instantly got snatched up. Right. So I went to some people and like, hey, you know, would you do 20, you know, to double down on this, would you give $20? And so I had a few more people say, so I think I bought like $100 coffee the next week. And that, that sold. And that kept on growing. And then other churches started hearing about what we were doing, and they started putting it. I had two, three guys living with me who came from California to do the church plant mm-hmm. at that time. And one of them was just an amazing graphic artist. His name's Todd Chesum and uh, co-founder of the church. We had a local Methodist church did a big order, and they're like, like what's, what's the name of it? And I mean— you're probably saying you're a marketing guy. Of course, you're going to brand it. You know, right, like I just, yeah. it just wasn't like I call Red Eye my accidental company. Right. Like I just, you know, I teach like business plans and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Like we didn't do any of that. <laughs> <laughs> it was just dumb luck. Yeah. Uh, we were, it, it was like late at night and we were trying to like, you know, print labels on an inkjet and come up with a brand and everything. And at the time, I, I drank a drink called Red Eyes, which is a black coffee with a shot of espresso. Okay. Um, because in Tallahassee, I couldn't find any, like, rich, dark roast at the time. There was no Starbucks. There was nothing like that here. Um, you know, people are like, you came here without a Starbucks? I came here <laughs> without a Costco or a Trader Joe's. So, and people would say I not – Dedicated to Tallahassee, That's shame right. on you. I, like, I, I was here in the hard <laughs> the personal days. sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. Like, That's amazing. Yes. Then my friend Todd's like, isn't a red eye like a tree frog in like Brazil or something? And I'm like, ah, I don't know. Yeah. You know, so we, so he, he sketched up, you know, this, um, you know, red eye tree frog and we wrote red eye on it. And then we like in- changed the R E, the D to a three. So it was R E three right. I, which most people never even saw on the brand. Uh, it would just, it started growing and people, and, and. So at was, that point, you're just buying coffee, repackaging, reselling. Yeah. That's exactly okay. all, all we were doing was in the roaster was extremely happy because we were buying tons of coffee. I'm sure he was happy. And, yeah. and, I I would people were happy because they were getting premium roast coffee, which was limited uh, in Tallahassee at the time. Now we're like a coffee mecca, but we were able to do like lots of really interesting, you know, cool projects that people were excited about. Like we were able to invest in some FSU film students, and they did a documentary on child trafficking out of Benin. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were able to participate in helping build homes for single mothers in Guatemala. So all this really like cool stuff was was from the out. profits of the coffee, right? And hundred percent always just just went to it. At that point, we stopped asking. I stopped asking people for donations, and the, and Red Eye was self supporting. So out of the profits after expenses would go. We had to buy new, more coffee, right? Sure, uh, yeah. 
And in 2008, Ed Murray was uh, making Midtown what we know as Midtown right. now. Back in 2008, it was Whataburger. A uh, brilliant man, had a brilliant vision for uh, Midtown and achieved it. Uh, I don't think anybody could argue with uh, with that. He, no. uh, so uh, we we went in there, and, and Ed's been just uh, just an amazing champion of Red Eye through the the good times and the bad. And we've definitely had some bad times too. So we opened up a brick and mortar through. A, I, I had one elder say, uh, "If this doesn't work, I'll make sure that you're fired." Uh, so there was a lot of wow. risk yeah. uh, uh, on it. I really believed in it. I never thought I was going to be in business again, but I just I felt this was this was right, and it was having a, it, like what we were able to do through Red Eye was so much more than what we were able to do through the church globally and locally. We had grown to helping subsidize or bridge the gap of 76 families, uh, nutritional gap for 76 families in Tallahassee every single week. We were able to help fund a nursing school in Haiti. So we grew to multiple locations. Yeah, we grew to multiple locations. Uh, we had six at our height. There are three uh, now. Right. Um, I, I haven't been part of Red Eye in probably four years. Right. You sold it, mm -hmm. or the the church sold it. The church or didn't how... want it, and they gifted it to me okay. when I left the church. Okay. It, it just it was just too much for yeah. them, uh, and. Uh, they're like basically, this is our thank you present to you. We don't, we don't want it. That's basically been your thing anyway. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so we scaled too quickly. Uh, we had we acquired another local coffee company that uh, was a roaster and and thought we had a really good business model, and we, you know, went into some new locations that didn't work out and mm -hmm. was just a money draw and took a while to write that ship and, and things. Now, uh, the new CEO and owner, Barbie Morrow, is just doing a terrific job. Yeah. Uh, she's ab absolutely fantastic. You should uh, interview her. <laughs> uh, she probably will tell the story differently, but she she really saved the company. Like I, I don't know if it would have folded, but it, it definitely with COVID and, and everything, it definitely yeah. had the blind staggers uh, to, toward the end, right. uh, yeah. everything. She just reinvented it and uh, is just doing like such an amazing, such an amazing job. And our partnership with, well, it's not Capital Regional anymore. It's um, HCA. HCA Florida Capital Hospital. Yes. <laughs> so like our our coffee shop in the hospital there has just been absolutely amazing. They've been incredibly generous, and we still have a location where the church is, Element 3 across from Tom Brown Park. You know, those three locations are, are doing really well. Yeah. And uh, even with the, the incredible market pressure that has grown since we used to be almost the only show in town, and, right. and now everybody and their mother has a coffee shop. Yeah. When I would say, I mean— for business, small business people in this community, the Midtown location of Red Eye has been, at least for me, my other place mm -hmm. to meet. I mean, I'm not a coffee drinker, mm -hmm. and I've been in that location. I'll pray for you. <laughs> Thank you. Hundred, <laughs> hundreds of times mm -hmm. because it's it's the place. I mean, it's centrally located. You cannot go in there without seeing somebody you know. Yeah. I mean, it's 
it, it's been a significant location for a lot of people for a long time. Absolutely. I think Jay Revel uh, said it best, or I like, I like the way he said it. He said, more business deals are made at Red Eye before 9 a.m. than the rest of the day in Tallahassee. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, you walk in there and see people like Steve Evans and Ed Murray and, you know, the mayor used, you know, uh, the elected, officials. There, elected officials. And yeah. I, it was funny one day. You know, nobody knows who I am there. You know, I was just like, I was walking in, and somebody was walking in behind me, and I opened up the door, and I'm like, "Hey, go ahead." He puts his head in, looks around, and then leaves. It was walking out. I said, "Is you're not going to get coffee? There's is there something wrong?" And again, he didn't know who I was. Right. And he's like, "Oh no, no, I stop here every single morning and put my head in to see if I could get a meeting that I couldn't get uh, <laughs> if I went through normal channels." Wow. And I'm like, "That's pretty cool. That like, is. this is where, you know." And it was not only commerce, right? I mean, you had, you know, support groups and it was just, it, it really was a centralized hub. And this is nothing I did. It just happened mm -hmm. to be like, I mean, a lot of what Ed, Ed Murray did. Right. Uh, we just happened to be the right business in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And it became something that, you know, was important. And in 2014, you joined the teaching faculty at the Jim Moran College of Entrepreneurship at Florida State University. Small correction. Oh, is that not right? Uh, it's close. Uh, I was recruited by the College of Social Science in 2014 to create uh, the social entrepreneurship ecosystem and right. start building the curriculum. 2015, FSU got a $100 million grant from uh, the Jim Moran Foundation to start a college. To start the college, yeah, right. Because we don't want to get confused with the Jim Moran Institute, right. which is an outreach program that helps right. entrepreneurs in town. Right. The college teaches students the tools of entrepreneurship, and the institute helps current entrepreneurs and small business owners. Right. Basically, they teach them the same thing, but but they're practitioners, right? And they can put yeah. it to practice. Yeah, I've been part of several programs yeah, that a, they do. It's it, awesome. It's yeah. one of the best kept secrets probably in Florida. Right. Like what the gym, and they do, I think, most of it for free. Yeah, I mean, and the small business executive program is incredible. Is incredible. Is absolutely yeah. incredible. And not only the content, but the networking opportunities and everything, and that people don't know about it or don't take advantage of it, know about it, know it's just like crazy to me. Like, yeah. It's just like great, great stuff. It so, is. so yeah, we're, you know, we deal with, we work with students, obviously, most of them, you know, uh, 20s. Right. And, and the so you're the social entrepreneur in residence, right? That's I your am title? So yes, I am. The, yes. I, my, my business card's about seven inches long. <laughs> yeah. So I, I do social entrepreneur. And most recently, I'm teaching a lot more. Like we started a master's degree in social and sustainable enterprises, which is based in ESG, which is uh, environmental social governances. Okay. So, and, and one thing that, you know, I try to teach and let the, the students know is, uh, you know, this whole thing, failure is not an option. Failure is definitely an option. It's always, you know, there. And, and all you can do going back to, you know, my mom, you know, you do everything that you can and there's going to be outside forces and you got to, you know, persevere. And at, at some point you just be, have to be able to look at your family and look at yourself and say, I did everything I could. All right, you've mentioned your wife a few times mm -hmm. as we've talked. I imagine she's played a pretty big role in this, in your story. Lots of changes and adventures and risks. And mm -hmm. um, tell me about her, her role in in your life story to this point. Yeah, she's she's a very private person. She's probably kind of the 
I'm kind of like, this is my life, take it or leave it. You know, this is who I am. Right. Uh, she's very private. Uh, she's ferociously loyal and supportive. She's always, you know, supported everything that that I wanted to do. That wasn't like too crazy. Uh, <laughs> I remember going home asking her, this was in Redondo Beach, when I was going to leave the business and, and felt like I was meant to plant a church. And I said, hey, came home and I'm like, what do you think about being poor? And, uh, and, and she was, you know, she was always steadfast and a hundred percent. There was a time in Red Eye that we thought we might lose everything. Um, everything was falling apart. It was, uh, we had overextended and everything. She's just 100% supportive. She's mm-hmm. just like, you know, my dad's thing, there is a way, you know, we'll figure it out. If we lose everything, we lose everything. And then we rebuild. Two last questions. And one of them we've already talked about. You've actually used the exact word, so it's kind of weird. But um, two questions I always ask at the end mm-hmm. is one, looking back on your life, what person or thing changed the trajectory of your life to this point? Now, Mrs. Bryson, I'm yeah. 100%. Uh, there's so many people, uh, Lee Bolin. There's been like just so many people. And and really, people here in Tallahassee, uh, Michael Joyce, who was the president of HCA in the Southern region, Steve Evans, Jay Revel. There's been just so many amazing people who, some reason, oh, Everett Drew, people who, for some reason, took an interest in in my life and what I was doing, and 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 supported me. That's biggest life lesson that, like, I try to tell my my students is. Like trying to do it alone is you you'll only be able to go so far. All right, Mark, final question. This podcast is named How I Got Here. Mm-hmm. We've talked about how you got to this point in your life. Mm-hmm. Where do you think here might be for you in the next three to five years? I have no idea. Uh that that's actually the big question uh for for my life right now. I I believe there's something coming. I don't know if it's the startup that I'm involved with, uh, which I'm really excited about. I don't know if uh, it's a different opportunity. I'm kind of free. I've been freed from the, I have to do this. I think there's lots of different things that are interesting. Um, I love working with companies and trying to help them become more ethical and more sustainable and how to communicate that. I love working with the students. You know, I, I like being active in the community. It could, it could be a lot of different things. And I'm very open at this point to what's the, what's, what's the next thing that, you know, I feel like I have another at least 10 years, big, big, what's, what's the big push in the next 10 years? You know, I've, I've done the church. I've done Red Eye. I've I've been able to make an impact at at FSU. You know the consulting business is going really well. I don't think that's it. I think there's something else on the horizon. Maybe somebody listening to this podcast is going to sh- shoot me an email and say, "Hey, what about this?" Yeah. So never. I always like I have an open door when it comes to like opportunities. You can always say no, but if you don't hear it, you don't you know you don't get to you know see the possibilities. And I love. I live in a world of possibilities. Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. 
thanks to my amazing staff at Fiori Communications, who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts, and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at fioricommunications.com.